Well, you can readily see this evening that we have props. One that has been there the last few weeks, that is the map. And then there is also on the map a red mountain toward the top in Turkey. That's Mount Ararat where the ark has rested and many believe is still there today, myself included. And we'll tell you why this evening. To my left is a representation of the ark of Noah built to a one to 87 scale, which is the scale I am told is used in HO gauge model trains that you can buy if you're into trains. So it's about that size. Um, it's not done exactly, it's just done to scale. The door's not in it, there's a lid on it, so you could uh, use it to store things. But uh, it's been in my office and someone graciously made it for me. And um, it's here so you can see it afterwards and you can view it as we're talking to visualize is to sympathize, so it's great to have this prop with us this evening. We read in Genesis chapter 6 a couple things to note. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And then down in verse 9, there's a contrast between the wickedness that filled the earth that's spoken about in the next few verses. And we read then, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And then down in verse 14, God says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms or literally nests in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. I don't know how much time you have spent out on the ocean. When I was a kid, my dad used to take us down to Newport Beach. We'd leave late at night from a place called Davy Jones Locker. And I used to love it because my dad say, boys want to go deep sea fishing? Of course, we said, yeah, deep sea fishing. I mean, forget little trout in the room. We want the big stuff. And we would go out and uh, catch, you know, some pretty big fish, even some sharks. And uh, it was thrilling as a kid. But I'll tell you what, the ride out there was hard. Uh, I got seasick several times, and um, it's hard to recover from and have a great time. I imagine that this boat ride for Noah, a total of about 371 days from beginning to end of the entire experience, I bet he couldn't wait to say bon voyage to this cruise. He was, he was ready to go. I, I've been across the English Channel when there's been some high seas. And nothing like what we read about here where the depths of the ocean floors erupted and springs of water uh, came out onto the dry land. And just the kind of a flood it must have been in the water that he was in, high seas. I remember being uh, on the English Channel and uh, some of the most prim and proper British men and women with their heads over the side of the ship they were so sick. It, it was a classic thing to see this elderly British woman in a mink coat and the high-heeled shoes, and she was just 
dumping off the edge. <laughs> now add to that two of every kind, the species of animals, inside an enclosure for that length of time, what it must have smelled like. It's like, God, I mean, thank you for saving me, but I don't know which is worse. <laughs> A living zoo. But, praise the Lord, there's verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark. <laughs> you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door and the ark in its side. You shall make it with a lower, second, and third deck. So there was probably a window about 18 inches tall that went around the top of the ark much like a modern gymnasium is built. God put a door in the ark, and we read in the next chapter that the Lord shut them in and kept them safe. And we notice in verse 16 that there are three decks. Now, some of you have seen the Sunday school pictures of the ark. I hope that this model will dispel the whole idea of this tiny little ship, you know, this kind of boat on each side floating around in the sea. It was a huge ship, the size of a modern sea vessel, a large one. The ark is given by measurements in verse 15, and in our measurements it would probably be about 450 feet long, as depicted at a 1 to 87 scale uh, behind us here. 75 feet wide and about 35 feet deep. What's interesting is that the British vessel, the dreadnought, has almost the exact proportions. In fact, there was a ship called the USS New Mexico named after this fair state, which had close to the same proportions. It was 624 feet long, 106 and a quarter feet deep, uh, or wide and 30 feet deep. So close to the same kind of proportions. Verse 17 continues, Behold, I myself am bringing the flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under the heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life, and everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah was willing to be different. The earth was corrupt filled with violence. The imaginations and thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually, but Noah walked with God, which meant whenever you walk with God, you are going to walk differently than everybody else walks. And he was the only righteous one upon the earth. Talk about standing against the tide. We all know what it's like to have peer pressure around us, to be conformed into the way of thinking of people around us. And it's hard to stand in school, in high school, in college, at work, against the corruption. You're, you stick out like a sore thumb. You're mocked. You're ridiculed. Well, imagine what Noah went through. 
For 120 years, he's building a boat in the middle of nowhere. Not a little boat, a big boat with one door. Noah, what you building? I'm building a boat. I can see that, Noah. Why are you building a boat? Because God said it's going to rain a lot. <laughs> oh, God told you that. Now, does God speak regularly to you, Noah? Do you have visions at night? Do you go out to the woods? Are you on anything that we should know about, Noah? Yeah, poor Noah putting up with that. But he walked with God and he did according to everything God commanded him. So he did. Then the day of good news came. The bad news was already there. I'm going to judge the earth and all flesh. The good news is the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Now, it's because of verses like this that years ago there was a lawsuit involving a man by the doctor, uh, name of Dr. Harry Rimmer who said if anyone can show him a contradiction in the Bible, he would pay him so much money. And so he was taken to court by a couple of fellows who said, here's a contradiction. On one hand, you have two of every animal. Here it says seven. And of course, later on we read that several of them, the clean animals, were taken on for the purpose of sacrifice. So seven, two for reproduction, five to sacrifice to the Lord when Noah would build an altar 371 days later. And of course, Dr. Harry Rimmer won the case. Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth. Forty days and forty nights I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. I find it wonderful that God gave him that extra week of grace. Seven days to knock on the door of the ark. And of course I think they would have been let in. We remember last time that Methuselah was quite old. We read about him back in chapter 5, and, uh, beginning in verse 22. In 25, Methuselah lived 187 years, begot Lamech. But all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and then he died. The name, as we said last week, Methuselah means when he is dead, it shall come. The very year, chronologically that Methuselah died was the year of the flood. When he is dead, it shall come. It came. After he died, but then there was also seven days of grace before it happened. Then I will destroy from the face of the earth all the living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was on the earth. If you're new to this study and you're wondering how on earth is that possible, is this figurative, is this literal, you might want to refer back to the previous tapes where that is explained. So Noah with his sons, his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts, of beasts that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth. Now, 
The moment they stepped into the ark, they separated at that point from their past. Everything was history. Once they were in, they were in. It was a complete and total separation. The past was over. They were cut off from it. A new life was beginning. Judgment would fall on the earth. A picture of a Christian. The ark is in a sense a type of Jesus Christ. And Peter uses this analogy and brings up the whole idea of baptism and the ark and the floodwaters. When you are baptized, you identify with a past fact that you have died with Christ, you were buried with Him. That's what baptism signifies. You come up out of the water, which speaks of resurrection. And Paul said, henceforth we should walk in newness of life. They were going to walk in newness of life. They'd be the only ones left to repopulate the earth. The past was gone. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 9, two by two went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, that all of the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. Of course, we're reading the facts generally. We're certainly not seeing the emotion in it. I'm sure it broke Noah's heart because he knew it was coming upon the earth. And you can hear the cries of the people outside the ark. I mean, at first they thought, yeah, right, it's going to rain. Sure, Noah, no problem. And then they probably had a day like today. And a few of them were a little fidgety. But men of the house said, honey, don't worry about it. It's just a little rain. We always get rain this time of year. Yeah, but honey, not this much. Oh, it's one of those freak years, the hundred-year flood. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about, the flood. No, not that flood. Don't worry about Noah's. And then it kept going, and it kept coming. And then we read about that the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open and the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, there's some things we want to consider about the possibility of this whole event. First of all, we have an ark. How could all of these animals fit on the ark that Noah's commanded to build in verse 14 of chapter 6? Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms or nests in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. One of the greatest books as resources you can buy on this event is called The Genesis Flood. It's written by Dr. John Whitcomb and Dr. Henry Morris, both professors at the Institute of Creation Research in San Diego, California. And in researching it, and going through the cubits and the fact that there were three decks on the ark, they said that there would be 95,700 square feet of space. That translates into 1,396,000 cubic feet of space. There was not only that much square footage and cubic feet, but then they would build rooms or nests. And of course, some animals would need larger places than other animals. Of course, rats could just hide in a dark corner, whereas elephants and giraffes, you know, they needed a king-sized bed and a fairly large suite. They would go according to the size of the animals. The gross tonnage of the ark was calculated at 13,690 tons, or comparable to some large modern-day 
ocean vessels. Then in their research, they looked to the capacity. How much could a boat like this hold in terms of animals? A boat this size with that kind of square footage, 95,700 square feet, could accommodate the equivalent of 522 train cars that are used to transport animals, each of which can carry 240 sheep, so it had the capacity of 120,000 sheep alone on the ark. Dr. Whitcomb and Morris in their book said, quote, there were probably less than 17,600 of the currently known species of mammals and birds and amphibians that would have needed shelter. They calculated for two each, as we read about from verses 14 all the way through chapter 7. And so they concluded that they needed room for 35,200 animals plus five each of the clean animals on top of the two, because it says seven in some of these cases. And so in all of their calculations, they came up with a total of 79,000 animals max. They stretched it. They gave extra room. 79,000 animals max that would have been on the ark. Of course, they calculated with the 522 train cars, 125,000 sheep could fit on there easily. And so a total of 79,000 animals max. In their research, they also said, we cannot overlook the concept that some animals were probably genetic banks, gene pools that could develop other kinds of animals. Of course, we know that certain animals are combinations of animals, not talking about evolution, but it could be that there was a genetic bank in some of them, and they have that theory. The ark, spiritually speaking, is not only a type of Jesus Christ, but it's a type of how God saves from judgment. I'd like you to keep your finger here and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 for just a few moments. Because Peter alludes to this idea a couple of times in his book as being something very fundamental. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he describes judgment that came upon the enemies of God. And he uses that to refer to the future of false teachers that would come. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with filthy conduct of the wicked. His conclusion, though, is verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. What he is saying is that God has always followed a pattern in judgment. That is, he knows how to make a difference between those who are his and those who are not. And he doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked, as Abraham's going to find out. He says, God, would you judge the righteous with the wicked? And after testing God several times, God says, no, I will not judge the righteous with the wicked. And if there's five righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll make a difference. I'll preserve it. God knows how to make a difference like he did with Noah, and God knows how to make a difference in the future when in the great tribulation the earth will be judged. I believe judgment is coming. 
I believe we're seeing the first fruits of it now and the consequences of the sowing of man's sin over a period of time. But God knows how to make a difference and to reserve his judgment for the ungodly and to preserve his people. Not through, but from. Oh, but Jesus said, you'll have great tribulation. He wasn't speaking about the great tribulation of judgment. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. That's tribulation that comes as a consequence of living in a sin-ridden world under the dominion of Satan. It's a difference from that and God's tribulation that He sends His judgment upon the earth. He knows how to make a difference. Well, Skip, are you saying that the ark is a type of the rapture? Not really. I see it as a type of the children of Israel being preserved through it. In the midst of the flood, I see Enoch who walked with God. He was translated, the New Testament says, translated, same concept as rapture. He was taken. He didn't die. God took him. Now let's talk just about the flood for a minute. Did it really happen? Now this is a big question that people have debated for years. There are people who look at the Bible, and especially the book of Genesis, as being completely figurative. It didn't happen. God put it there. There are fanciful myths like Greek mythology. Or he had some underlying spiritual value lesson behind it, but it didn't really happen. Don't take it literally. I mean, who could believe that a flood happened? Well, I think it's verified by Jesus. As it was in the days of Noah before the flood, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And he described the events, and he said, before the flood. It's verified by Jesus. So if there was no flood, then Jesus either didn't know his history, and he was ignorant, and you ought not to trust him, or he was accommodating to the ignorance of his time, which means he was deceiving people, or he believed in the flood, and he was speaking the truth. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian hired by the Romans, he makes mention of the flood. Marco Polo, in his explorations in the 1300s, he makes mention of the ark that sits upon Mount Ararat, outlined in the red mountain behind you. Practically every ancient nation, tribe and people, have written in their history creation and flood, almost universally, creation and flood. Although they have fanciful stories, it shows that deep at their roots there was the knowledge of the creation of the world by a supreme being and that the world underwent a flood, a worldwide flood. Now they may have believed it was a local flood. Of course they were in different parts of the world and that culture only saw their culture. But I believe actually in a complete worldwide, not just a local flood. Which brings up the point, why couldn't it be local versus universal? Let me tell you the theory. Right behind us is a map where you have one in your Bibles and you see the Persian Gulf area, the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley where Ur is, U-R, Ur of the Chaldees, right there, and Lagash. That's the cradle of civilization where some believe the Garden of Eden was. And so scholars, some of them, will say it was a local flood that flooded the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley because of the rising of the Persian Gulf. But it was local. It was not universal. I contend that it was universal. For several reasons, notwithstanding 
this presence of some strange vessel spotted by military men and scientists for generations that still sits on Mount Ararat, some 14,000 feet above sea level, is where it sits today. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 8. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Oh well, that still could be a term referring to the local earth around the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. Well, that term is used four times in the book of Genesis, apart from the flood, and it always speaks of something universal. Animals that would spread on the face of the earth, and uh, the creation uh, before the flood that extended to the face of the whole earth by God and so forth. Then look over at chapter 7, verse 19. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all of the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. You say, well, now how did this happen? That's a lot of rain. Well, keep in mind two things. What goes on under the earth with its plates, tectonic plates, and geologic surges. And if you've been to Southern California lately, you don't have to be reminded of that. And that also there was this shroud that covered the earth, giving longevity to man and that universal greenhouse effect where you didn't have the changes of seasons like you had after the flood. You had this universal kind of climatic condition, a mild climate. And now look at verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all of the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. Verse 11 refers to a general upheaval on the ocean floor, a geologic process that we call faulting or cleavage, earth cleavage. And again, if you've been to Southern California, that's not news to you. But it doesn't say one, it says all of the fountains of the deep were broken up. Quite a cataclysm. Now if you are a geologist or you have a background of geology, pardon my ignorance tonight. In that, I am not one who believes in uniformitarianism, like you would if you've been schooled by modern colleges. There are, however, catastrophe or cataclysmic geologists who believe in the great catastrophes of the past, like the flood, like creation, some of them in recreation. One of them is Dr. Stephen Austin, a professor of geology at the Institute of Creation Research in San Diego, who says, quote, one can imagine a continent surrounded on four sides by oceans containing many seafloor springs that ruptured. Waves created by many point sources of energy would have impinged upon the continent as long as the energetic disturbance of the oceans was maintained. The rise of water over the continent would have caused a corresponding lowering of the level of the oceans until the continent was completely covered. As I said, most geologists in the last 150 years believe in uniformitarianism. That is, there are no cataclysms. The the results of what you see now upon the earth are the results of just change that is natural, that occurs over a period of time, uh, that we can observe now. But there were no great catastrophes or cataclysms of the past. In fact, Peter predicted that. 
that that would be one of the prevailing beliefs in the last days. Uh, since you have marked Second Peter, turn back there again to chapter 3 this time, and let's see Peter's warning. Verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's uniformitarianism, predicted by Peter as a prevailing philosophy in the last days. For this they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. They will deny cataclysm of the flood, and they will be into uniformitarianism. As I said, there are catastrophic geologists. Dr. Whitcomb and Morris are a couple of them. You can read the Genesis flood. I commend it to you. It's fascinating reading. I was going through it today a little bit. And uh, the last couple of weeks I find it interesting. They believe in the flood for several reasons. Let me give you a couple of highlights. First of all, because of sedimentary strata, which has been believed in the past to have developed slowly, deposited slowly over millions of years, which in their writings, they and many others believe, accumulated rapidly. And they point to several places on the earth for this. The hills surrounding the Rhine Valley are a couple places where some of them were completely entrenched in mud and they show happened quickly. There's a quick accumulation, not over a long period of time. Secondly, the widespread elevated erosional surfaces caused by large amounts of water flowing through the land, i.e. the Grand Canyon, the most notable. And then thirdly, things like mammoths that have been found in places like Alaska, Northern Asia, Canada, at either of the poles, perfectly preserved in case and ice. What's really strange is that within their stomach was tropical vegetation. Explorers, uh, in the, like during Marco Polo's time, lived off of these animals that at that time were, you know, some 4,000 years old as they drew them out and ate some of the frozen meat and contents to stay alive. Now, um, let's see, where do we leave off? Oh yeah, verse 12. The rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle, after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. A lot of birds. They went into the ark to Noah two by two of all flesh, which is in the breath of life, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. How did he survive? God shut him in. How did he not leak? God shut him in. See, they put pitch within and without, but what about the door? They could do it on the inside, but not the outside, but God preserved them. God shut them in. Now, it would be an, indeed an exciting discovery, would it not? If perhaps in our generation, 
Maybe in the last days before the coming of the Lord, the ark was found on Mount Ararat. <laughs> That's been a proposition that have excited a lot of people, a lot of explorers, a lot of scientists, ancient and modern. There are many people who believe that the ark still rests on that 16,300-foot peak of Mount Ararat at the 14,000-foot level. I would like to share with you now a couple of articles from the past up to the present that would bear record that there's something up there. Back in 1935, a story appeared in Australia in a place called, or a magazine called, The Life Digest. It's an Australian publication, and it said a Russian aviator named Vladimir Roskovitsky claimed to have discovered Noah's Ark. He had been stationed in a temporary military outpost in southern Russia just across the border from Turkey near Mount Ararat and had been told to test one of the Russian Air Force planes. In the course of these tests, he and his co-pilot flew over Mount Ararat and discovered on the edge of a retaining glacier what he later described as a boat comparable in size to many modern battleships. He wrote that it was grounded on the shore of a lake with about one-fourth of the rear still running out into the water and its extreme rear was three-fourths under the water. It had been partially dismantled on one side near the front, and on the other side there was a great door nearly 20 feet square. But with the door gone, Roskovitsky reported his find to his commanding officer, and an expedition was dispatched to Mount Ararat, which, according to the story, subsequently found the ark and photographed it. Accounts were forwarded to the Tsar. Unfortunately, a short time after receiving this report, the government of the Tsar was overthrown and the photographs and reports perished. Say, oh, yeah, right. They had evidence, but now it's gone. But in 1948, the Associated Press ran this article, quote, The petrified remains of an object in which peasants insist resembles a ship has been found high on top of Mount Ararat, the biblical landing place of Noah's Ark. It's interesting how the Associated Press wrote articles back in 1948. If it was a modern article, they would say, as some or as few people believe is the resting place. They just said, the landing place of Noah's Ark. Apparently hidden for centuries, it came to light last summer when unusually warm weather melted away an ancient mantle of ice and snow. Now, I've gone through several articles. I'm not going to read all of them to you, but the evidence is there, and you might want to read Whitcomb and Morris's The Genesis Flood. But... There are a few facts in the investigation of Noah's Ark that are beyond dispute. Let me share them with you. Number one, at the 14,000-foot level on Mount Ararat in Turkey, there is a very large wooden boat structure buried beneath many feet of ice and snow. It's there. Something is there. A friend of mine in town is one of the people that has been on the research team back and forth to Mount Ararat with some of these scientists and uh, has lots of evidence on it. Number two, a boat-like structure has been mentioned as being on Mount Ararat by explorers and historians of several civilizations beginning as early as 700 B.C. Third, during the 1800s, this structure was observed by many local explorers, including numerous Turkish military authorities who gave the structure official governmental recognition in the news media. Four, in 1955, a filmed expedition recovered wood from the structure nearly 35 feet below the ice surface. Five, the recovered wood, subjected to numerous types of dating tests, reveal an age range from 
1,200 to 5,000 years old. Six, early in the decade of the 1970s, American spy planes, weather and military satellites photographed the structure on Mount Ararat. And I've seen those photographs. And it's uh, awesome. It's, you just, wow. Now you could say, well, that's all circumstantial evidence. You're right. It's not conclusive. But it is significant. It is important. Now there's something else before we finish out chapter 7 and go to chapter 8 that bears noting. Because you and I are living in days that I believe closely parallel that of Noah. In the book of Matthew, chapter 24, Jesus is asked a question by his disciples. He tells of the end of the world. He tells of the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment that would come upon the world. And the disciples said, tell us. When will these things be, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Actually, that's a question that's been on the minds of men for generations. When's the end of the world? About eight years ago, the Gallup organization polled the United States and asked them a simple question. If you could ask God one question face to face, what would it be? Number six on the list, after questions like, why is there suffering in the world? Why is there disease? Will there ever be a cure? Number six question was, when will the world end? Number seven, the question was, what does the future hold for me and my family? Number eight, is there life after death? What about the future? The disciples said, what about the future? Jesus answers their question by giving them a list of signs. And then he says, these signs are the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains. I know very little about birth pains. I only know them by observation. I've never felt them, but I've watched them. As a spectator, granted, but I learned something. And that is, a woman's pain while she's carrying a child does not indicate that the baby's coming. The sign that the baby is coming is the frequency and the intensity of those pains that can be measured. When, when pains are frequent, they can be timed and they're more intense, call the doctor and he'll say, come in. Are they five minutes of years? Come in. The signs that Jesus described have been going on since the beginning of time, but they're the beginning of sorrows or birth pains. When those signs are frequent and intense, Jesus said that is an indication that the coming is near. He described earthquakes in various places, great ones. And of course, if you were to look at all these signs and see the intensity and frequency of them, we have seen all of these signs in an unparalleled fashion in our generation and our generation alone. That can be proven, and we've done that on many occasions to show you that. But Jesus said something very interested, interesting toward the end of Matthew uh, 24. He said, But of the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Down in verse 42 he says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, 
you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. As it was in the days of Noah, what were the days of Noah like, much like our days? First of all, in chapter 6 of Genesis, we've already read, men began to multiply upon the face of the earth. First it was Cain, Abel, Lamech, the lineage of Adam through Cain, the lineage of Adam through Seth, and it gives us some of the generations. But then men began to multiply upon the face of the earth, probably exponentially at that time. We have heard for some time that we live in a time that we cannot sustain the amount of people that we have upon the earth due to the, to the way we use our resources. It took from the beginning of history until 1850 to get one billion people on planet Earth. From 1850 to 1930 to arrive at the two billion mark. From 1930 to 1960, three billion. Sixty to seventy-five, only fifteen years. You get four billion. We're over five. As much as 8.5 billion by the year 2010, some say. There's an exponential increase. Then, in the days of Noah, there was the breakdown of the traditional family and rampant sexual activity, as we read about in the first part of Genesis 6. The sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, there's many interpretations of that, as we've already discussed, but the interesting thing is the traditional family was beginning to be broken up, and people took to themselves women, whoever they would choose. And strange... Uh, people then, we read, populated the earth. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Do we see that today? Is there a breakdown in our family structure in this country, in this world? I mean, it's being attacked like never before. It's being replaced with freestyled sexuality. Sex a la carte. Take your pick. It doesn't matter. It's all right. There's nothing wrong. If you like homosexuality, that's just an alternate lifestyle. Some people like it. If you like multiple partners, fine. If you like short-term marriages, if you don't like marriages, live together. Anything's acceptable. There's a chipping away of the values and the structure of the American family. Divorce has risen 700% in our century. One divorce for every 1.8 marriages. Six out of ten children born in 1990 will live in single-parent homes by the age of 18. We're seeing the reaping of those consequences. It's been said the family can survive without a nation, but a nation cannot survive without the family. And so as the family is being broken up, we're being ripened for judgment, I believe. Throwing out the family, sex is promoted on virtually every front, though AIDS will probably no doubt be the biggest killer of any epidemic in history. Right now, the Atlanta Control, the disease, uh, Center for Disease Control estimates there are one million people in America infected with the virus. By the year 2000, worldwide, there will be, according to them, at least 20 million people infected. See. Casting away the traditional family has given us the broken family. We're reaping what we have sown. Self-styled sexuality has brought in the AIDS virus. We are reaping what we have sown. 
Will God judge us? I think we're self-destructing, first of all. Now what's the solution? What's our government solution? Safe sex. And so they'll give out condoms, which have a 16 to 35 percent failure rate. You want to take those kind of odds? You call that safe when a life's at stake? Well, I've been tested. Doesn't show up in many cases for 10 years. And it's a rapidly changing virus. And by the way, condoms are tested by the Food and Drug Administration. They're considered safe if they have 19 or less holes up to the size of one micron. Twenty or more, it's unsafe. One micron. The AIDS virus is one-tenth of a micron and can fit through those holes. Safe? Sex? And if you talk about abstinence and the traditional family and loving your wife and staying together, pff, come on. That's outdated. Well, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. There was abounding wickedness during that time. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 that we read last week. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And get this, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made, man, made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abounding wickedness. Of course, Paul the Apostle described this in Romans. The thoughts of their minds or hearts became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not wish to retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. So God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not seemly or proper. The thoughts of men's hearts only evil continually. At one time in our country, there was a moral consensus. If you walked up to a person on the street, say in the 1930s, and you said, don't do that, that's wrong, they would understand that. You could tell a child back then, this is right, this is wrong. You could tell society, this is right, this is wrong. If you said that to a person today, they'll give you the most confused look they can come up with. Not because they're trying to, they just don't understand that. They really have no moral cement, no basis for right and wrong. The idea of absolutes is completely obliterated from our society. And the thoughts of men's hearts are only evil continually. I have a book, I've referred to it before, called The Day America Told the Truth. A secular book, not a Christian. It's in any secular bookstore. It was a poll given anonymously to Americans. They said, we won't tell people your address, your names. It's completely confidential. And they asked them a series of questions, and they found out, first of all, that 91% of Americans lie regularly, and two out of three see nothing wrong with it. No, I was just lying. No, it really is the truth. 91% lie regularly. <laughs> two out of three see nothing at all wrong with it. 42% of Americans, according to this survey, have regular violent sexual urges. 42% have regular violent sexual urges. 
And look at the garbage that's out there today. Garbage in, garbage out. When you're fed and programmed violence and wickedness in the movies and television, so much so that some people, perhaps some of you, are even becoming immune to the R rating. That's unfortunate, actually. When that kind of wickedness can be spewed out and you say, oh, you know, they just had a few sex scenes and said 50,000 cuss words, no big deal, it never affects me. Think for just a moment. Every year on television, the average person sees 9,230 sexual acts or implied sexual acts, 81% which are outside the bounds of marriage. Which means the average kid growing up, if he starts watching at age 8 till age 18, watches 93,000 or implied sexual acts, 73,000 are pre- or extramarital affairs. That doesn't have an effect. Those many messages, only evil continually. Then, look down in verse 9, there was an epidemic of violence. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. He was perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. But verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Violence began with Cain killing Abel. Lamech, the descendant of Cain, took up the banner had an argument with a fella, killed him and bragged about it to his wives. Listen, my wives, I just killed a man because he disagreed with me. And from that point, test, from that point on, wickedness began to increase in the face of the earth. Now, your kids and my son, they're exposed to television. Some of it's okay to see, but be very careful. Violence on children's television programs has risen in the last 10 years, 41%. Just the cartoons and stuff, it's risen 41%. You say, oh, come on, they're kids. Yeah, but kids grow up to be adults. And then things like the Los Angeles riots and the things that have happened recently in Atlanta and Seattle and some of the other things springing up, it's a pro they're programmed in many cases. You take it lightly, you could be sorry one day. Violence was spread, as we read here in the face of the earth. It's not just kid stuff. It is predicted, by the way. It's not going to get any better. I don't want to give you the bad news, but it's the truth. More and more people are gravitating toward metropolises. Some of the metropolises, like in California, turn into what they call a megalopolis. Several metropoli together is a megalopolis. Millions and millions and millions of people, hours and hours on the freeway. The more people, the more corruption. A psychologist years ago did an interesting experiment with rats. He put more rats, and he, they always do this to determine human behavior, and I always wonder about that, but maybe they know something we don't. They put rats together in a given area, more rats than could or should be sustained by that area, and they notice some interesting things develop. The rats begin to develop antisocial patterns. Then they became very violent. And thirdly, parents neglected their children among the rats. Very indicative, I believe, in that case, of human behavior. Violence on the face of the earth. It must have been enough 
that it angered God to the point that he was ready to judge them. It wasn't, hey, Lamech just killed somebody and bragged about it. I'm going to destroy everyone. It covered the earth. Now let's leave America for a moment and think of the rest of the world. There's violence on an international level. That's what war is. War is simply violence internationally. The threat of war is something more on the minds of people than ever before since Operation Desert Storm. People are wondering what the future holds. And now everybody's worried about Saddam Hussein. Is there a coup? What's he up to next? Though he's someone to be worried about, have you thought of Iran? They're coming back on the scene. I think they're a lot more frightening than Iraq at this point. You say, why is that? Well, because the Soviet Union has been broken up. You say, well, that's wonderful. Well, yeah, it is wonderful. We can get the gospel in. But that means that we've upset the balance of power, first of all. We've given rise to some of the states, the five southern republics, that are totally Islamic. One of them is Kazakhstan, the fourth largest producer of nuclear bombs on earth, who has recently sold three of them to Iran at the ticket of 150 million bucks. 250 Soviet scientists left the USSR. They used to be paid $10 a week, $10 a month. Now they're being paid $5,000 a month by the Iranian government. They're very motivated to keep Iran stockpiled and ready with nuclear warfare. Why? Rafsan Jani, a few months ago, said, we want to unite the Arab Brotherhood to push out the Judeo-Christian ethics from the Middle East and to control Jerusalem. Frightening prospect in light of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's coming to pass before our very eyes. Violence has covered the land. By the way, that's called Operation Grand Design by the Iranians. Now, now that I've completely bummed you out, <laughs> there's good news. Look at verse 9. Noah walked with God. In the midst of all that, Noah walked with God, and God had a plan for Noah besides judgment. Now turn back to Matthew 24, and notice what... Oh, you don't have to turn. I can just read it to you if you'd like. Got your fingers all over. You're trying to figure out which one to hold. Oh, we should notice something else here. As it was... Uh, verse 38, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. What does that mean? He's not describing sinful activities, just describing normal human behavior. In other words, it was business as usual. They went on about their merry life, marrying, giving in marriage, doing normal things, totally oblivious to the impending judgment, scoffing at the judgment. In the last days, scoffers will come. Oh, look. Things will always continue as they always were, uniformitarianism. Yes, we're evolving to a higher plane of life, evolution. As it was in the days of Noah, they'll be marrying, giving in marriage, oblivious to impending doom, not prepared for death. You know, I would describe this world, speaking of boats tonight, of a sinking ship. Some kind of a hole has been struck into the hull. The ship is going down. The captain doesn't want to flip everybody out, so he says, Hey, I'm the captain. I'm just changing all the rules all of a sudden. If you bought a second-class ticket, I'm going to let you upgrade free into first class. 
have king-sized cabins. First come, first serve. Go for it. Wow, what a nice captain we have. What a great fella. Free. Um, by the way, everybody on board, free drinks in the bar on me. If you want to play soccer in the ballroom, no problem. Everybody thinks, God, this captain's wonderful, man. I mean, he's just throwing out all the rules. We can do whatever we want. We're having a great time. Little do they know, in five minutes, they'll be dead. And so the devil does that. He says, hey, serve me. You can have fun. Let's break all the restraints. Do whatever you want. What a nice captain we have. Yeah, right. Well, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. Satan's a good boss. He'll pay you everything you deserve. But Jesus, in exchange for you giving your life to him and accepting his life, will give you eternal life. It's a free gift of God. Noah walked with God. That's what we ought to do. What is the hope? Well, it's not in the elections, believe me that. <laughs> oh, I know if Ross Perot, the who, uh, George or Willie. <laughs> Get involved in the process, certainly, but if you think that's going to change things dramatically worldwide, well, am I a pessimist? I try not to be. I'm a biblicist. I'm a realist. I look around and I see what's happening. Boy, I want to get involved and I want to vote for someone who has the best agenda for our country. But Noah walked with God. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk with somebody? Go where they're going. If they're going in that direction, you're going in that direction. You stop going in that direction and you go with him. Noah walked with God. He went in the direction God was going, which is usually the direction most people are not going. Whereupon comes to us the biblical word repent, to change direction, to turn around. If you're going that way, walk with God tonight. If you haven't given Him your life, give it to Him tonight, because it will happen. But Noah walked with God, and God preserved him. I wanted to share that with you because it's on my heart. Your life might be falling apart at the seams tonight. Perhaps your girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you, or you lost your job, or you're having trouble with a spouse. A number of things could have happened been laid off. You don't know what to do. You don't know which way is up. In 1990, shortly before his death, Malcolm Forbes, that self-made millionaire and businessman, entrepreneur, was being interviewed on the Joan Rivers show. You know, she asked some pretty crazy questions. And she asked Malcolm Forbes, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want? Without hesitation, he said, eternal life. A few days after that, he died, and he took a trip into eternity. You can know by walking with God and being ready, as Jesus said, like the people in Noah's time were not. You can know for certain that your eternity is fixed and secure. By this we know that we have eternal life, John wrote in his epistle. In the next four minutes, let's see how, if we can finish chapter 7. Well, we, yeah, we already covered a lot of that. The flood was on the earth for 40 days. The waters increased, lifted up the ark, and it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth. The ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, 
and all of the high hills were covered under heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, cattle, beasts, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life that was on the dry land died. And so he destroyed all living things that were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things, and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth, only Noah. And those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. Now, after that length of time, there was forty days, forty nights. A hundred and fifty days, there was, uh, it prevailed on the earth, and we have several days after that given to us in chapter 8. It says, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing. What kind of a world did Noah wake up to? What did he see? What cataclysmic changes have occurred because of the flood? Those are things we'll discuss next week. Perhaps the earth became tilted, as some believe at that point, to its present 23 and a third degrees, giving us the four seasons. We'll discuss that next week. But the important thing is that only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Why? Because Noah walked with God. In verse 22 of chapter 6, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. You live in a generation like the days of Noah. All restraints are broken sexually. The family is passe. Violence is in and will increase. And you can be different. You can walk with God. You cannot go the way of the crowd. Oh, you'll be ridiculed. They ridiculed Noah, but you know what? He had a boat. <laughs> You'll be ridiculed, but you know what? You have a boat. You can hide in Jesus and he will preserve you. Whoever believes in him, it says in the Gospel of John, will pass from death into life and will not come into judgment. When God judges this earth, because you've passed from death into life, you won't experience the same judgment. Jesus spoke about the same things that we just spoke about in Matthew in the Gospel of Luke. And he said, pray therefore that you can escape all of these things and be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. I'm praying that because he told me to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though these days are very much like the days of Noah, and people are indeed oblivious to your judgment. We thank you that we have a refuge. Lord, as oblivious as people are to judgment, they are also oblivious to your love. They can't conceive that you love them like you said you love them, and that you want the best for them like your word declares. How, oh God, I thank you that you are not a religion. You are not a ritual. You are not a church. You are the living God who transcends all of these things. 